0: Cheryl Broderson, and I'm with... Jasmine Allnut. Actually, Jasmine, you should say your name first because you're an A and I'm a B. You're oh. an Allnut and I'm a Broderson. Oh my and my gosh. We've been me.
1: unalphabetical this whole time. So unalphabetical. We apologize, everyone. Yes,
0: totally. <laughs> Out of order. But Jasmine, why are we here?
1: Well, Cheryl, we're here today to talk about another woman worth knowing. And who is that? Today, we're going to learn about Hannah Moore. And? And, uh, this is a... This is a two-parter. That's right. Yes, because here's the thing. Hannah Moore, she should be better known than she is, honestly. She's pretty remarkable, but she's not super well-known. And so I thought like, man, there is so much on her that I was like, well, I could cram it all into one episode, but I want to try to space it out a little bit here. I so think we're going to be really healthy you. for you. It is. It's really <laughs> going to help. My stress levels, <laughs> I, you know, I already get have a lot of caffeine uh, <laughs> when we do this, and so this is going to be really good. So, (laughs) but like I said, um, she's one of those that I, I wish was more known. And so I'm kind of surprised as I've read her story. And it's so funny, the biography that I read, which I'll get to later, um, Eric Metaxas did a little forward on this. And he said, he w- he read this story and was like, how come I've never heard of this woman? I mean, she was so amazing. She's actually sometimes called the first Victorian. Mm. So this is, we're talking Victorian era, mm. all right? So late 1700s, early 1800s. And uh, it's interesting because, some historians think she's probably not as well known today because the Victorians, even though they were wonderful in their generation, they were really vilified by the modernists in future generations who looked at, that looked down on them like, oh, those prude Victorians and they're moralizing and blah, blah, blah. And so uh, they were, again, looked down on. And so Hannah Moore was kind of shoved to the side and kind of relegated well, to you ant- think- you know, old and Yes, but irrelevant. I, I think
0: too, though, is because they were like um- – colonialists. Yeah. And so a lot of people didn't like the expansion of England and England tried to make English colonies. Like, so they tried to make little Englands wherever they went. And sometimes I think that they felt like the English weren't respecting the culture. And that's another reason that the Victorians were often.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And even if, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate because sometimes you throw the baby out with the bathwater when you do that. And and that's kind of like when people say somebody's puritanical, you know, dissing the Puritans. The Puritans had flaws. (laughs) Absolutely. But there were also some really radiant, wonderful, godly people who really did wonderful things for the Lord, and so you always want to look at the full picture of these things, right. and not just project a modern perspective on those people. And so that's a great that's a great point. That's probably partly why that happened to her. So some of her writings, uh, because she was an author and a poet, as we're going to see, uh, were likewise considered kind of dated by modern standards, but. She had a huge influence on 18th, 19th century England, and it was largely positive. There were some wonderful things that she did. Uh, ironically, things that were very revolutionary and progressive that the moderns should have appreciated. So. Um, someone actually said what William Wilberforce was among men, Hannah Moore was among women. Mm. So those of you who know William Wilberforce, we're going to talk about him a little bit here. Uh, I mean, we think of him and he's more well known as a remarkable figure, but Hannah Moore was like the William Wilberforce in England during that time, which is sweet because they were actually really close friends and co-laborers as we're going to see.
0: Mm. So did she, she meet was... with a Clapham seven? Oh, yes. Oh, oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll be quiet.
1: No, no, you're good. Thank you. That's <laughs> give him a teaser here. Yes. Uh, so she was born Thanks in Bristol. <laughs> To Jacob and Mary Moore, And we don't know a lot about them. There's like conflicting accounts of who they were and what they did. But we do know her dad was apparently a moderately educated uh, school teacher. Mm -hmm. And there's a story that Mary, Hannah's mom, was going to teach Hannah how to read when she was about three or four years old. But she sat down with Hannah and found out Hannah had already taught herself to read. Oh, my goodness. So that's what we're going to see with her. Oh, my goodness. Not surprising. She was just super sharp. Smart as a whip, as you would say in the old days. (laughs) Um, she was the fourth of five girls in the family.
0: Oh my goodness! I know
1: all of them uh, were known for their intellect. They were all very scholastic, very intelligent women. Any very boys pious. in that family? No,
0: no, I, know. I don't. I don't think so. So it was like the Cunninghams. Yeah, there you go.
1: Exactly. Very pious. Um they all had very solid character. I believe they all were Christians, uh, Anglican, Church of England girls. Um s- just like I said, strong character. They were all just really um well respected in Bristol. Um remarkably, they were such a close sisterhood. None of them ever married, which is crazy. Five sisters and none of them ever never ever married. But even though that's kind of unusual, if you think about it when you, you know, when we learn as we're going to see about them. Uh, That would happen sometimes when you had girls that were intellectual, that wanted to maybe pursue uh, education or um, a career. Sometimes to maintain their independence in that culture, you would kind of have to stay single. Otherwise, everything came under your husband. You might not even have, unless he was very progressive, you wouldn't have the freedom and the opportunity to continue. And so they kind of all just decided, "Eh, let's just stay single. Now, Hannah was the one, she must have been the big looker in the family because she did have some suitors. When she was in her 20s, her first suitor, this man, William Turner, and he was a country gentleman. He was actually about 20 years older than her, which sounds weird, but back then that was very common. A guy would get established and, you know, have his fortune or his estate, and then he would think, well, now I can provide for a wife and get married. And so, you know, he was actually a great guy solid citizen, very intelligent, poetic. So they had a lot of similar interests. They loved literature and poetry and all of that sort of a thing. And so because they had so much in common, they just hit it off and started courting. And Turner even gave Hannah a cottage on his estate that she could go to just by herself to go work on her writing. So, you know, nothing weird there. It was just like, well, I'm going to set this aside for you to go and pursue writing. And so this was kind of a big deal for her. This really um, was formative for her career as as a poetess, a playwright, an author later on. And so um, Hannah and William got engaged in 1767. So Hannah was about 21, 22, but the engagement lasted for six years, um, during which time William backed out of the set wedding date, not once, not twice, three times. Wow. <laughs> he kept backing out every time they'd be like, okay, we're setting. Th-. He's like, well, and okay, he would wait, just so get cold is, feet. When was this again? Seventeen sixty seven was the beginning of their 1767.
0: courtship. Seventeen so, sixty seven. So we're talking. Meanwhile, in America, there's the unrest. And oh, we're starting to get towards the yeah, the Revolutionary revolution. War is mm-hmm. about to happen. Right. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So I, this
1: is yeah. There's a time of unrest there. Who knows if he was so feeling what that you have, sense? Is but, that
0: William and Mary who are? This was George, George. King George. Oh George yeah, that's, right. Third, that's I think? right. That's one right. That's right. We're George, already the into the, the Georges. Yeah, one
1: creepy guys. Anyway, yeah.
0: There are three Georges. Yes, they
1: were a mess. At least,
0: and then there's been more sense. Oh
1: right. gosh. Yeah. So he like backs out three times. And so by the third time he chickens out, Hannah's done. She's like, you know, you're just not wanting to do this. In fact, her biographer talks about how basically William was just a confirmed bachelor. One of those guys that just could not you know, pull the trigger and settle down. Even though he loved Hannah, and it's funny, he talked about how he just loved her the rest of his life. He just adored her, but he just couldn't take the plunge. And so he actually continued to help her financially with her writing. He believed in her and all she was doing, but they just stayed friends, basically. So Hannah actually had one more serious suitor after this. His name was Dr. James Langhorn, But maybe. Biographers don't know, but they think because of her bad experience with William Turner, she when, when Langhorne proposed to her, she turned him down. She was just mm. kind of like, oh man, I just can't do this again. And so that was that. She just kind of decided I'm going to just stay single at that point. Now, back when she was about 13 years old, her oldest sister, Mary, remember, like I said, these are all very intelligent, brilliant women. uh, Her oldest sister, Mary, had opened a school in Bristol. And so all of the Moore sisters eventually participated in the school and served as teachers. And so Hannah became really big on women's education. That's going to come into the story as we move along here. And, And that was very progressive at that time, because up to this time, um, you know, people were becoming more literate and more educated to some degree, but there was some of the popular opinion on women's education that it should be um, centered on helping men. Like women, whatever they do, should be focused on what they can do for men. Uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a very famous philosopher at that time, that was kind of his take on women's education. Like that's fine as long as everything they do is to help their men and benefit men and all of that. Not that that's a terrible thing, but there was no thought that a woman should, for her own intellectual pursuit, or even to contribute to society. That just wasn't really you know, a thing. Or to contribute
0: to other women.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so for women to get, like I said, to get educated, to contribute to society or to other women or whatever, um, was totally revolutionary. And so that was something about the Moore sisters that was very unique in their, in their school. Um, now, and and like I said, that's going to come into her story again later. We'll probably get to that in the part two, her, her work in education. Uh, now Hannah, um, was a very strong and stalwart girl. Um, you know, she could really tough it out and, and and was very persevering. But you know, it's important to highlight the struggles that these women had as well. <laughs> like when we talk about Anna Spafford, whoa, there were some struggles there. But uh, Hannah did have health issues that would crop up from time to time. Um, nowadays, we would probably look at her symptoms and diagnose her with like migraines. Um, she also struggled with depression sometimes, where she would just you know isolate for a season. And have to battle through that as we're going to see. There's a couple other things, too, that I'll highlight. Again, to remind us that these are just normal people.
0: But she's <laughs> also in England. And depression Oh, yeah, is, is really big in England still. It's yes. a really big the problem. Weather, yeah, mm-hmm. there is
1: something to that for sure. The seasonal affective disorder right. that they face over there in the UK. My sister lives in Scotland. And boy, mm-hmm. yeah, they deal they, with that there. They, have they to get have happy, lights. happy light. Yeah, yes. the, happy, we're gonna, the happy lights. Um, but... Uh, her biographer said Moore's special savvy was turning obstacles into opportunities. Mm. And she did that with her health. And that was especially true about the start of her writing career. Um, So she began writing plays for the school for her sister's school and her first play she wrote at 18 was called the search after happiness. And it became super popular in Bristol and some of the surrounding areas. And then some of her other plays started to gain some traction and, um, you know, just her gifts as a, as a playwright soon became apparent to some more well-known figures. Uh, Bristol was a kind of a a happening town. It's on the coast of England and people, you know, so you'd have uh, notable people come down there to Bristol. And so, uh, you know, she started getting some exposure in the local theaters and people started to hear about her. Um, And then in her late 20s early 30s, uh, a family friend, his name was Sir James Stonehouse. He became a really big influence on Hannah. And he basically, for a couple of reasons. First of all, he basically launched her literary career. So, you know, William Turner kind of got her started financially so that she would have The ability, the time, you know, she didn't have to go scrape and scrimp and save. She would actually have the luxury of sitting and doing some writing. But now he was the one who kind of launched her literary career by introducing her to, uh, I guess what we would call the literati of London, the intelligentsia. And uh, more importantly, though, he was an evangelical Christian. And so he played a critical role in
0: starting to give her a spiritual awakening. OK, but let's talk about this because mm-hmm. this is this is pre Brontes mm-hmm. and this is pre Jane Austen. Yes, you're so, right. This is like women. In fact, even the Bronte sisters uh when they first submitted some of their writings, they they used male names. Yes, because yeah. it was just unheard of that a woman would write something. Yeah, nobody would so take you is, seriously. Mm-hmm. Totally.
1: So yeah, again, that's that's an important point. If you look at the timeline of this here, I mean, we're, this is still mid late seventeen hundreds. Mm-hmm. This is early.
0: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so Hannah, starts, and this is actually Georgian, as yes, we were saying. Georgian, this is exactly. not Victorian yet. This is Georgian. Yes, mm-hmm. she's on the
1: cusp of getting mm-hmm. into that era. That's exactly right. So. Um, she starts going to London in the mid 1770s and kind of rubbing shoulders with some of the literati, like I said, and she meets uh, a famous actor uh, named David Garrick. And some people who are familiar with literature, you might you might recognize that name. I recognize the name, but I don't really know a lot about him. I was like, I know <laughs> you're looking at me like, what? I don't know. But yeah. I- <laughs> and he actually performed in, uh, one of her plays. And so he was familiar with her and was like, oh, I want to meet the, uh, you know, the author, the playwright who wrote this. And so they connected and they actually became really close friends. Uh, in fact, um, Hannah got really close with his wife, Ava. And this is kind of an important thing for Hannah, as we're going to see. Her biographer uh, pointed out, their lasting friendship is a foremost example of Moore's love and embrace of those of different religious and political convictions, a quality not always found. As devoted a Protestant as Moore was, like an evangelical, uh, Eva, Eva Garrick's Roman Catholic beliefs never threatened their close friendship. This was very unusual back then. And we know even if you study early American history and English history, People were so uh, suspicious of Catholics and, like, what are they going to try to do? I don't know if this was just left over from the Reformation era or what, but there was this suspicion. But the Catholics were
0: suspicious of of the Protestants. Yes, there was this bad blood left over. Probably because of Henry VIII's purging. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that did not help. That was a big deal. the Catholics taking away the, you know, cathedrals and the abbots. Yeah, yeah, kicking all the priests out. Right, but then you had his daughter Mary coming in Mm -hmm. and persecuting all the Protestants and, you know, burning them at the stake. Yes, it
1: it got so ugly. It took, I mean, and we don't, in in America, we don't really have that kind of perspective because we're technically a, quote, newer country. But Mm -hmm. there's a
0: lot of bad blood from centuries in Mm -hmm. Europe. So So there's this— is there a conversion day? Like, does Hannah talk about the day that she really or just well, kind there's of grew a time, up? I think it's like a growing conviction, as mm-hmm. we're going to see. That's a okay. great question because she does grow in that. Now, she's a
1: believer, but there's a time where she really – um owns it and becomes vibrant mm-hmm. in her walk as we're going to see. That's actually a really good good point. But at this point here, it's cool because she's able to connect with a Catholic. and that mm-hmm. was like even though she disagreed with a lot of Catholicism, she was able to be friends and and you know, we've talked about a, a lot about, you know f- that that willingness to bridge the gap with people and to dialogue and not just cancel and write people off that we disagree with, but to be willing to talk to them and form these friendships. And it's really, really neat. We're going to continue to see that with Hannah. She was a, a bridge builder, mm-hmm. and that was huge for the influence that she would have. So, you know, her friendship with the Garricks really opened up doors for her. Um, she began to meet more prominent people of that day, uh, the painter Sir Joshua Reynolds. If you go to art galleries of English painting, you'll see some of
0: his work. Wait, now, um, isn't Reynolds a portrait painter? I believe that so, yes. That was what he was famous yeah. for. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, Edmund Burke, um, S- Edward Gibbon, who wrote Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. That was a really famous uh, work on history at that time. Also, Samuel Johnson, who literally wrote the uh, English Dictionary. So that's the guy who wrote the English Dictionary. We always think of Daniel Webster. Samuel Johnson. That's the American one. Was that- yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> the
0: American version. Samuel Johnson wrote the English Dictionary. And it's cute. Um- well, he actually wrote the American di- uh, Dictionary at the same time that Daniel Webster was writing the oh. um, American Dictionary. Oh, controversial. Yeah, Who's- that's what- why? That's why there's ah, this. Uh, interesting. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it was about the same time. It was about the turn of the century, uh, about, you know, the, we're talking about the colonial late 1800s yep, mm-hmm. yep. So um, it's cute because she and
1: Johnson hit it off so well. They became such good friends. They loved to just joke together. They just got each other's humor and everything. And so people. It was probably very, joke-
0: very wordy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Very
1: erudite. I don't think any of us could have kept up. <laughs> But people like kind jokingly suggested mm-hmm. like, hey, maybe you guys will get together and be an item. But that was just silly because um, he was 35 years older than her and his, he was a widower and he had adored his wife. He never wanted to remarry. But it was just sweet. They formed mm-hmm. a really close friendship. Um, and again, even though he wasn't a Christian, he was, uh, you know, just, a, you know, kind of a worldly man. But they
0: There's had a, a really cool friendship. There's a on him. There is. Yes. And putting together the um, English dictionary. Oh, how interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you happen to think of what that is, well, well, we can post it. Why Mm -hmm. not? (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. So the relationship with Johnson and the Garricks became uh, really the most significant relationships and friendships she had during the London years. Um, Now, it's interesting, again, talking about her weaknesses, because she was just only human. You know, she wasn't just, wow, so amazing. But she really struggled with insecurity among the upper classes. And so sometimes, you know, her biographer said she would be known to kind of overly ingratiate herself to them, like kind of kiss up to them a little bit too much where people were like put off, which was funny. It was just an insecurity she didn't need to have because she was so clever. She didn't need to do that. She She could hold her own among the intelligentsia, but it's just, you know, it just goes to show we all have our weaknesses and insecurities. That was something that would kind of plague her, the fear of man. And she'd have to like commit that to the Lord repeatedly throughout her life. Um, So that's just something that she had to work through. Um, And at this point, and this is important to know, it's kind of goes with what Cheryl was uh, mentioning earlier about her, you know, conversion and stuff. At this point, she wasn't quite as sober minded as she would become, but she was virtuous. She was considered still like, you know, she didn't, go all in with all of the, you know, the frivolous entertainment and all of that, that the uh, people around her were doing. Her biographer said she was always weighing and judging the excesses that surrounded her. And she would retreat and go do a lot of writing. Um, Her works were well-received. They were bestsellers. I mean, she was starting to really make a name for herself, but she maintained her virtue, I guess you would say, um, in the midst of all of the, you know, craziness around her. And at this point, she became part of a, a, a literary group, a group of intellectuals called the Blue Stocking Circle. And this was a very prestigious group of writers. Um, And she was called the virtuous wit of the group and became kind of the resident poet. And they all thought she was the most clever. And it was um, a very uh, conservative and religiously minded group. Of people, Well, I'm sorry, there were religiously minded people in the group like more, but there were also uh, other more, I guess you'd say secular folks. Um, but what made it so revolutionary was that it was men and women together. And that was something unheard of, that you would have like a club of men and women joined together to talk about these subjects. If you ever watch like old BBC productions and stuff. You usually see the men uh, you know, in the drawing room and the women retire to go talk about fashion and have tea together uh, after dinner and that sort of a thing. It was a very separated, there were very separated spheres. So for men and women to join together and even um, respect each other as equals in contributing intellectually together was super unusual and revolutionary. So the blukes stocking Cir- Circle was kind of a big deal. And this was a starting point for Hannah Again, like I said, we're seeing things in her early life that are going to come up later. I probably said this before, but something that my mom always says that stick with me is that what happens now in our lives is for later. And a lot of times the things we're doing and going through now, whether we realize the importance of them or not, are going to come into play later on. And that was true of Hannah's life. And even these circles she's moving in right now, um, she's participating in social circles and clubs normally exclusive to men. And that's going to foreshadow The most significant uh, group that she was a part of later, which, again, we'll probably talk about uh, in our next episode, which was the Clapham sect. Mm -hmm. So that's where that's going to come in. That's really a big, big thing in her life and really in English life and history, honestly. So after a few years, so she's going on and involved in all of these circles. But the luster and the glamour of London started to fade out for her. She started realizing more and more how much she hated the frivolous fashions, just how silly some of this was. And she's looking at the aristocrats around her, the upper class, and she's saying they're just so absorbed in really frivolous, silly stuff, like, you know, just amusing and entertaining themselves all the time. She's like, really, what is this for? Um, She also, during this time, she got sucked into this plagiarism controversy, and it was something she didn't even do. Apparently, um, Garrick had helped her write a play. He contributed and helped her, and she thought that was fine, Well, what she didn't realize was that he had helped this other woman. And I don't know if he didn't realize it, but he was giving the same ideas to this other gal. And so Hannah writes this play and then the woman accuses her of plagiarism. So it turns into this big, ugly mess. And Hannah did worry about what people thought. And so it really stressed her out. And that kind of started to um, play a role as well in weakening her. It kind of disillusioned her and her love of theater and London life and all of this. She was just starting to get kind of... Uh, again, jaded and disillusioned by the whole thing. And she was also starting to realize as she became more uh, spiritually minded and the Lord was starting to awaken her own heart um, that it was running kind of contrary to those leanings. In fact, one time she said she was in the theater watching a play and all of a sudden um, she thought of, you know, in Kings when, when God says, uh, Elijah, what are you doing here? She just felt like God said that to her. Hannah, what are you doing here? And she just got a little bit convicted. Like, what am
0: I doing here? In fact, isn't that interesting? Mm-hmm. I mean, you really—it's almost like you have to lose your appetite.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, that
0: mm-hmm. you have to see through it, and God has to show yes. you kind of the emptiness of these things. Yes,
1: yeah. Totally. Exactly. And that's what started to happen. She just, Mm -hmm. yes, she started to lose her appetite. And then one of her publishers even said to her, you're too good a Christian to be a dramatic author, Hannah. Mm -hmm. So all of these things, like you said, it was starting to like hit her and convict her. Like, yeah, is this really what I want to invest my whole life in? And so um, the cool thing is though, she did start to realize that, you know what? Okay. Maybe the theater is losing its charm and, and drama and literature and all of those things. But she began to realize, okay, Maybe I could employ these for more spiritual ends. Maybe there's a different direction I could take my writing and my work. And so in 1782, she published sacred dramas um, for that purpose. And it actually became really popular with the common people. And so she once said... I hope the poets and painters will at last bring the Bible into fashion Mm. and that people will get to like it from taste. And so I like that because she started realizing we can use all these things for the glory of God. I'm not going to compartmentalize my faith that this is just a separate thing. I go to church and then the rest of my life is whatever I want. I'm going to bring Jesus into the arts. And, you know, you see that with a lot of the most effective, you know, people that minister throughout history. I remember Martin Luther did that. He took all of the folk songs out in the villages and put Christian lyrics to them so that people would want to sing along and learn about the things of God, bring it under the Lordship of Jesus. And so, uh, that was, you know, something she began to realize more and more that she wanted to do. And it was becoming clear during this season that, um, she was starting to kind of withdraw from fashionable society. And then David Garrick died in 1779. Samuel Johnson died in 1784. And so in that five-year period, that really began to close that door off for her. Um, and her biographer said it was clear that she was undergoing a greater sense of calling to more serious work, to more devotion in her faith, and with it to ministry and serving others. So she moves out of London in 1785 to Cowslip Green. I just think that's a cute name. Um... And she said this. She said, I know that many people who I hear say a thousand brilliant, agreeable things you know, like the literati in London, they disbelieve or at least disregard those truths on which I found my everlasting hopes. Mm. This sets me upon a more diligent inquiry into those truths of Christianity. And the more I press, the stronger I find it. And I thought, that's so cool. You know, here she is, she's pushing on these foundations and these things people are putting their hope in in London, you know, their their education, their uh, money and wealth and influence, fame. And she's realizing, wow, those are really crumbling foundations. And Mm -hmm. the more she presses, into her faith, the more she realized this is a sure foundation. This is what I want to build on. And so, um, it's interesting because during her blue stocking years, um, when she was in that club, she had taken on a protege, this, this milkmaid and her name was Anne Yearsley and, uh, Anne had a gift for poetry. And so Hannah tutored her and funded her first book of poems. And it was this huge success. Now, the relationship kind of soured. There's a lot that happened, unfortunately, in all of that. And um, I think Anne Yearsley kind of became ungrateful. But anyway, uh, but this was really important for a couple of reasons. Um, first of all, it showed that Hannah could bridge the gap between those socioeconomic classes because she actually took the poetry from a, a milkmaid, a lower class woman, to the attention of the elites. She brought it to the literati in London and said, look at this woman's writing. That was a big deal because England's classes were so stratified and distinct. So for her to try to bridge that gap, like I was talking about with the Protestant Catholic gap, that was really a neat thing. and we're going to see um, more and more of that bridge building that Hannah Moore was so uh, gifted in that the Lord used her in. Um, Secondly, um, through all of that, her biographer said this experience contributed to Moore's slowly growing awareness that something more than education, more than wealth, more than influence or power or literary prowess was needed to affect real change in both individuals and society. And this was another moment when she realized The gospel is what's really going to transform people. You know, I can do all this and help people, kind of, but unless I give them the foundation of the gospel.
0: You know, what's really great so far that I'm seeing too, though, Mm. is she worked in her sphere. Yes. You know, she didn't go, this is where she was gifted. This is where she was comfortable, where God put her. And Mm. she worked in her sphere. I mean, Hannah Moore is not a woman worth knowing because she went to Bolivia or, you know, someplace (laughs) outside of, but she would. It was where she lived mm-hmm. and what she did. Yep. And where the Lord planted and put her. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, and this goes to, this is where we really answer your question there about her conversion and everything. In 1780, when she was still in London, she had read a book called *Cartaphonia* by John Newton. And we know who John Newton was. Well, maybe you guys don't. But he was, some of you might know, the author of the greatest, most famous hymn in Amazing. history. Grace. Amazing Grace. Right? He had been a former slave ship owner who had just been a horrible you know debauched person before the amazing grace of god transformed his life and so
0: Andy became it became a real proponent of abolition. And that's where, yes, exactly. And that was a big thing. And so he uh, really brought
1: the life and power of uh, of the gospel into that evangelical style um, that was so different from the formal religion that Hannah was accustomed to. Like I said, she was a Christian, she loved God, but John Newton's book, Cardifonia, really uh, was kind of the final seed, I guess you'd say, that really sparked something in, in her that really wanted her, her made her wanna go for it with the Lord. And it really transformed her walk with God. And she recommended that book to everyone. And in 1787, she went to meet him, hear him preach. And it was Newton, her biographer said, who convinced her to devote her life to promoting spiritual education and reformation across British society, just like he had done with another guy, William Wilberforce. And that's what's really cool, because we see the way he inspired Wilberforce to stay in parliament and use his gifts for the glory of God in the abolitionist movement. Well, he did the same for Hannah Moore, and this is where they're going to start connecting with one another so
0: yes how old is hannah more about okay, this time uh,
1: around this time so she's well this is actually yeah like i said 1780 was when she really had that transformation so she was around 35 35 and so
0: now we're moving toward her okay. 40s and in england a woman at 35 in that era was almost considered uh, you know way past her prime yep yep kind of you know unusable yeah you yeah know, and yet this is when she's going to come into her she's going
1: to really launch from this yes. point okay so. so this
0: is we're gonna this we've this is our cliffhanger, right? Yes, we're going to
1: cliffhang you guys. Well, I don't, is that a word? I don't even know if that's a word. Hang you off a cliff? Anyway. We're
0: going to make you wait. Point. Yes, for part two. So that, so you want to tune in mm-hmm. um, to Women Worth Knowing. Yes. Because we're going to finish this story of Hannah Moore. That's all the time we have for today. Yep. We'll get back to it. Okay. <laughs> we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at WWK We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends.